danger. It's just hanging out, waiting for fear and horror to show up. Unknown. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Today, the serial killer next door, Dennis Rader, was a good father, a good husband, and a respectable member of his community. He just had some bad habits like binding, torturing, and killing innocent people. This is BTK. On January 15th, 1974, 11-year-old Josephine Otero found herself staring down a monster in the basement of her quaint family home. She was trembling, terrified, Just a few minutes ago, she'd been having a perfectly normal afternoon, joking around with her parents and brother, playing with the dog. Now, mom and dad's bodies were lying in a bloody heap on their bed upstairs. Her brother was dead on the floor of his bedroom, and she was in the basement, trapped with the man who had just annihilated her world. What's going to happen to me? She asked her captor. Well, honey, the monster's mustache flicked against his thin, dry lips. You're going to be in heaven with the rest of your family. The monster dug his merciless claws into her neck. He strangled her. Then, he hanged her from a pipe. Over 30 years later, that same monster sat in an interrogation room. He was chillingly casual as he spoke. I remember problems with Josephine because her hair was in the way. For this monster, Josie was a project, a game he could play and win. He first noticed her weeks before and hadn't stopped thinking about her ever since. It was she he wanted. Her family was just an inconvenient obstacle to get out of the way. Now, he had conquered his victim at last. He masturbated over her hanging body before he left her there, floating dead in the dark. Upstairs, the afternoon sun shone through the windows, glitters of dust dancing in the air over nine-year-old Joey whose lifeless body lay on the floor beside his bunk bed. Earlier that day, he had opened his back door to let the dog out. He didn't know there was a mustache monster hiding behind it. A monster waiting for the chance to get inside. To steal him and his family away forever. A room over, the children's mother, Julie Otero, and father, Joseph Otero, were a lump on the mattress, bound and strangled, never given a chance to protect their sweet babies. They remained like that for a while, the house blanketed in eerie stillness, an unforgiving quiet. The monster was gone but he had taken four innocent lives with him. He strolled through their neighborhood unnoticed, able to vanish into the innocence of daytime when people aren't watching their backs, aren't suspicious of a mustached figure who alone on the sidewalk looks like a man, not a monster. The man made his way to his own house A small, ranch-style home in a quiet, friendly neighborhood. 
Red awning adorned the front window. The house was wrapped in orange brick and white siding. He let himself inside. Back at the Otero house, the victims were about to be discovered. Julie and Joseph's two older children, Danny and Charlie, arrived back home from school. In the meantime, the man closed his front door behind him, shutting out the cold of that January day. And now, for a quick break. Denise, tell me a story. There once was a serial killer. Is this for real? Oh yes, Zelda, this is for real. Murderous Roots, a podcast dedicated to tracing the tangled ancestry of the terrifying. We all come from somewhere. New episodes come out every other Wednesday. You can find Murderous Roots at MurderousRoots.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the show. He shed his coat. He exhaled the excitement of the afternoon and inhaled the calm and quiet of home sweet home. Charlie noticed right away that something was wrong. It was too quiet. His mother's purse was flipped over like someone had been rifling through it. He headed for his parents' room. Later, he recalled the moment on oxygen's snapped. I went in the back door, opened it, and saw my mom's purse. When I saw that, I ran down the hall to my parents' room and saw my mother and father lying there. I knew they were dead instantly because you could smell the dried blood. You could smell the fear. First, I tried to undo the knots. They weren't coming undone. We realized we needed to call the police, but at that point, the phone was dead in the house. So we went outside into the yard. Danny went next door and called. It was like somebody ripping your heart out. It was a physical feeling. I don't know if I'd be here today if I had found Josie or Joe. I don't know if I could have handled it. I will miss them until the day I die. While young Charlie and Danny's lives were crumbling before them, the man who killed their family greeted his loving wife. He kissed her hello and spent the rest of the evening laughing beside her under the soft glow of the living room light. She was glad to see her husband so happy. Years later, the man pondered out loud in an interview, how could a guy like me, a church member, raise the family, go out and do those sorts of things? It's a dark side of me and it kind of controls me. I think it's the demons within me. Dennis Rader didn't have an unhappy childhood. He grew up in Wichita, Kansas, the oldest of four children. His parents, Doretha and William, were busy. William worked long hours and had little time left to devote to his kids. Doretha liked to read and watch TV. She let the children's grandparents handle much of her child-rearing obligations. She wasn't a terrible mother, didn't smack or berate her kids. She was just, while absent, even when she was around, deprived of attention. Dennis and siblings were largely left to fend for themselves. Dennis later recalled, I got along real well with dad, but mom wasn't always quite happy. I've always loved her. I still love her greatly, but I have a little, a little bit of a grudge against mama. When Dennis was in elementary school, his mother's ring got caught in the spring of a couch. She was stuck, her fingers swelling, and she asked her son to get help. Instead, the child was fixated. This was his mother. He was to obey her, respect her, look up to her, 
And yet something as small, as frivolous, as jewelry had stopped her in her tracks, had kept her frozen in place, unable to move, to do anything but shout for help. Dennis watched her for a while without moving. Even as she begged for help, he stood there, transfixed. He felt something in his body that he had never experienced before. He was aroused. The image of his helpless mother would stick with him for years. He would obsess over recreating it. Daydream about women trapped in fear, powerless. These fantasies were as sexual for the child as they were sadistic. Soon, Dennis was aroused every time he received a spanking. He masturbated to his father's book about the Lonely Hearts Killer. In Raider's words, his fantasies were just a bit weirder than other people. Dennis started torturing and killing animals in secret. His favorite part of hanging cats was watching them struggle. He got off to a family of chickens he once saw headed for slaughter. As he got older, his fantasies became more specific. When he closed his eyes, he saw images of women tied to train tracks. He had visions of his fingers twirling through the lace of women's underwear. But in his mind, the underwear was stolen. It belonged to a victim, not a lover. It was like he wanted to rip lingerie off of a corpse. By the time Dennis was in high school, he was sort of afraid of the opposite sex. The pretty girls in his class intimidated him. He would blush and forget his words if they approached him. And now, for a quick break. Hey guys, this is Ben. And I'm Karen. All you do is read about crime. If you have serial killer posters in your bedroom. And if you're hiding newspaper article clippings under your bed. Looking at you, Karen. <laughs> Don't be concerned, guys. We share your compulsion. You can join us at crimeandcompulsion.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya. Now, back to the show. He hated how small women made him feel. How insecure, how powerless. He spent school nights cutting pictures of women out of magazines. He doodled gags over their mouths and binds over their wrists and ankles. Then, he glued his new pictures to index cards and carried them around in his pockets. He took back control, even if it was just pretend. The pictures, though, weren't enough. He needed something tangible to get off to, something real to relinquish his darkness upon. Strangely, he turned to himself. While other teens were buying records and hanging out at the mall, Raider was collecting masks and women's clothing. He bought himself a Polaroid with a timer, reserved a room in a motel. There, he slipped on bras and panties, placed a mask of a woman's face over his own, and tied his hands and feet together. Then, he snapped a few thousand pictures of himself. He called this playtime a motel party, and it soon became his favorite weekend grind. When he got to a certain point of arousal, he called it Sparky Big Time. He was always after Sparky Big Time. He was in his mid-twenties when he met Paula at church. She was the bright-eyed daughter of a librarian and a car engineer. A happy, all-American Christian girl who dreamed of starting a family and living a happy life. When she met Dennis Rader, he seemed like a respectable man. He was working in the local supermarket while attending community college. He was polite, respectful, and kind. She married him in 1971, just one year after they met. Those first years of marriage were happy ones. The couple moved into a sweet little home in Park City, Kansas. They went to church on Sundays, lived a routine life. Then, Dennis got laid off. Paula was working as a bookkeeper, and soon, the couple was relying on her paycheck to pay the bills. Dennis felt emasculated, pathetic. He hated that his wife was the breadwinner, and at home, he was starting to lose his sense of control. In his mind, if Paula was the earner, Dennis was the dependent. 
he was powerless. The fantasies of his teenage years started creeping into his head once again. He needed to regain his sense of control. And these days, magazines weren't going to cut it. He started following women around in the supermarket, around parking lots, down the street. He became engrossed in visions of snatching them, binding them, making them his. And then, his fantasies reached a new level. They grew into something more personal than sex. He read about the Boston Strangler and Charles Manson. When he heard their stories, it wasn't the gruesome murders that made him squirm. It was the notoriety, the fame, the legacy that these monsters had created for themselves. Dennis was jealous. He wanted that too. In 1974, Raider noticed the Otero family pulling out of their driveway. His eyes fixated on 11-year-old Josie. Something about the little girl captivated him. For days, he couldn't get her image out of his head. He began to fantasize about her, but it wasn't enough. He started stalking her instead, watching her through her window. In his mind, he called her his project. In an interview after his arrest, Raider explained, I have many, what I call them projects. They were different people in the town that I followed, watched. Little Josie just happened to be the first. On January 15th, 1974, Raider decided to make a move. He hid in the Otero's backyard, waiting for an opportunity to get into their house. It came when nine-year-old Joey went to let the dog out. I confronted the family. He told a news anchor decades later, pulled a pistol, and then I took them back to the bedroom. At that time, I tied them up. I didn't have a mask on or anything. They could already ID me. I made a decision to strangle them. Shortly after the murders, the Otero's car was discovered in a supermarket parking lot. Witnesses said they saw a Caucasian man in his 30s getting out of it. The police put together a sketch composite, but it wasn't enough to lead anywhere. In the meantime, Raider was at home with his wife, as though everything were completely normal. He went to work in the mornings, had dinner in the evenings, and attended church on Sundays. Nine months went by, and he was never detected. Who would suspect this nice young gentleman? This husband, this 28-year-old, of hanging a little girl from a pipe in her basement. Instead, police zeroed in on their sexual predator list. They found a man who met the description. A sexual deviant who had been arrested in the past for similar crimes. They made an arrest. Figured they had their guy. The town of Wichita breathed a collective sigh of relief. As the news of the family's murder faded into the background, Raider grew frustrated. He relished in watching the reports, loved the attention, even if he couldn't share it with anyone. He refused to let the story die, let someone else get credit for his triumph. In October 1974, he dialed the Wichita Eagle newspaper. The call came through as anonymous dialed in from a payphone. He claimed to be the guy behind the Otero family slaughter. He thought the public should know that the cops got the wrong guy. He said that to prove it, he wrote a detailed letter about the crime, which he had tucked inside a book at the library. Sure enough, the police found a long, rambling letter inside a book on engineering at the Wichita Public Library. It described the killing precisely, recounting information about the crime scene that the police had never released to the public. I'm sorry this happened to the society. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang-up. Where this monster entered my brain, I will never know. But it's here to stay. How does one cure himself if you ask for help? that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it. So the monster goes on and hurt me as well as society. 
Maybe you can stop him. I can't. Good luck hunting. Chillingly, he ended the letter. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code word for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. You see? He's at it again. That's right. The monster named himself. He wanted to be known. It wasn't until April that he struck again. 21-year-old Catherine Bright was a student at Wichita State University. Raider had noticed her a few weeks earlier and had been stalking her ever since. On that faithful April day, she arrived home with her brother Kevin, unaware that a killer was lurking inside. He had cut the phone cords. They were passing the bedroom when a man's voice boomed from inside it. Hold it right there, he said, and the blood in Catherine and Kevin's veins froze. Raider explained to the trembling siblings that he wasn't there to hurt them. He just wanted money in a car. He needed to go to New York. But when Kevin went to hand over the keys, Raider became more menacing. He forced Kevin to tie up his sister in the bedroom. Then he tied up Kevin in another room. He ransacked the house, his terrified prey bound and gagged as they watched him take what was theirs. When he was done, he headed straight for Kevin. Armed with a knotted stocking, he held it around the 19-year-old's neck and started to strangle him. I jumped to my feet. Kevin later shared on Larry King Live. He pulled a gun from his waistband. Kevin managed to grab the gun and attempted to pull the trigger, but nothing happened. He jerked it away from me and shot me. Raider then shot the struggling, bleeding young man a second time. I played like I was dead. Raider left him bleeding into the carpet and headed for his sister's room. While he strangled her, Kevin ran from the house and got a neighbor's help. Just like her brother, Catherine put up a fight. She wasn't going to let go of her life easily. Finally, Raider gave up on his efforts to strangle her. He pulled a knife out from his belt and stabbed her instead. Over and over and over. By the time the neighbors arrived with the police, Catherine was dead and her killer was nowhere to be found. Shortly after the murder, Dennis and Paula welcomed their first child, a baby boy who they named Brian. Dennis was overjoyed. He was excited to be a father and wanted to dedicate himself fully to his little boy. For years, he put his fantasies to the side and focused on nurturing his little family. During this time, Dennis was working as a security advisor for ADT. He entered people's homes nearly every day, examined their layouts, learned how their security systems functioned. For Raider, this was enough to fulfill his urges. He felt a sense of power over his customers, delighted in the knowledge that he could overtake them if he wanted to and he was able to sustain himself on daydreams alone until his son turned three. Then, he noticed Shirley. Relford was a mother of three children, all under the age of eight. She divided her time between caring for her kids and singing in the church choir. Her life was comfortable and happy, busy but fulfilling. On March 17th, 1977, she asked her five-year-old son, Steve, to fetch her some soup from the store. She wasn't feeling well. He was arriving back home when a friendly-looking man approached him. He showed him a picture of a woman and a child and asked him if he recognized them. The five-year-old shook his head and headed inside. A few minutes later, he heard a knock on the door. He and his brother raced to answer it. A game they liked to play. Fun, playful competition. Little Steve won the race. 
He pulled the door open, and the man with the photograph burst inside. It was Dennis Rader. Steve remembered years later that Rader immediately started pulling blinds, turns off the TV, reaches in his shoulder holster, and pulls out a pistol. His mother came running out of her bedroom to see what the commotion was about. She froze when she saw the intruder. About that time, recalled Steve, the phone rang. I asked mom, do you want me to answer it? No, leave it alone, he said. I asked mom. She said, no, leave it alone. Do as he says. So I did. After that, he took a rope, tied one of the doors shut, the doorknob tied to the sink. He pushed a bed up against the other door, stripped my mother, taped her hands behind her back, a plastic bag over her head, and a rope tied around her neck. At that point, the three kids were locked in the bathroom, but they could see what was happening to their mother from a crack in the door. Little Steve was standing on the bathtub to get a better view. He was shaking and crying, watching, and unable to save his sweet mother. Unable to take it, Steve cried out that he was going to untie the door and that he was going to rescue his mom. Raider told me if I did, he'd blow my fucking head off. Today, he is still haunted by one image he told CNN, that he still sees his mother lying face down with a plastic bag over her head, a rope tied around her neck, all the fingers in her hand broken. And now, for a quick break. Some of these aren't so crazy, but let's pause and talk about rule one again. Maintain humanity under 500 million. Wait, how did I miss that? 500 million? So how would that compare to today's population? Okay, so that means that about 85% of our population has to go. Y'all, 85%, that's terrifying. And this thing is supposed to withstand catastrophic events? Is it supposed to predict something's going to happen to the 85%? I know. I don't oh, know. Crazy. Oh, my gosh. Hi, everyone. This is Brooke from Curly Conspiracies. I hope you liked the clip from our Georgia Guidestones episode. If you want to find out more about this conspiracy, go to curlyconspiracies.com or you can find us on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Now, back to what you all came for. Now, back to the show. Her hands taped behind her back. That's what I remember. Years after the murder, Steve was at his grandparents' house when he saw a familiar picture of a woman and a little boy. It was the same picture Raider had showed him that day. It was only then he realized that had been a picture of his mother and himself. Raider abandoned Shirley Relford on the floor of her home, her kids shaking in the bathtub. He headed home to his own little boy, three-year-old Brian, and kissed him on the head, ever the loving father. Nancy Fox was petite, and she lived alone. When Raider first eyed her nine months after killing of Shirley, he knew she'd be an easy target. Nancy Fox was another one of those projects, Raider told investigators later. When I was trolling the area, I noticed her go into her house one night. I dropped by once to check her mailbox to see what her name was found out where she worked. The more I knew about a person, the more I felt comfortable with it. When Fox arrived home from work the night of December 8, 1977, Raider had already let himself inside and cut her phone cord. He bound her, killed her. Semen was found next to her head. 
Just one day later, he called the police from a payphone. He sounded calm, cool, and collected as he spoke. You will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing Street, Nancy Fox. He hung up. For Raider, taunting the police was one of the best parts of the job. He loved to believe that he was in control, that he was terrorizing them as much as he terrorized his victims. The more he saw his nickname on the news, the more invincible he felt. Cake TV news anchor Larry Hatberg told Snapped, BTK is a master puppeteer. He controls the police department. He controls the media. He controls the public. He's the guy pulling the strings. There were seven murders under Raider's belt, but the police were having trouble connecting them. While they had a feeling there might be a serial killer on the prowl, they couldn't know for sure. After all, there was very little in common between the crimes. Aside from the phone lines being cut, each victim seemed to be chosen at completely random and killed in different ways. Some were shot, others were stabbed, others were suffocated and strangled. Sometimes kids were involved, sometimes not. There wasn't quite enough to tie these crimes together. Raider was impatient. He had murdered seven people now, including two children. He wanted to be labeled a serial killer. He wanted a taste of that level of celebrity. In February 1978, right around the two-month anniversary of Fox's brutal slaying, Wichita Eagle got a letter in the mail. In it were the names of all seven of Raider's victims. The murders were described matter-of-factly, like the writer was putting together research for a paper. How many more people do I have to kill to get attention? He asked. It was signed BTK. The chief of police held a news conference. He officially declared there was a killer on the loose. The town fell into panic. In June of that same year, Paula gave birth to the couple's second child. They welcomed a daughter, Carrie. Dennis was smitten right away. Once again, he stopped killing. He let go of the role of a manic killer and traded it for one much softer, the devoted father. In an interview with 2020, an adult Carrie recollected her childhood with her father. She remembers it as a loving one. We pretty much had the American dream. You know, the three-bedroom ranch with the Springer Spaniel dog. And then when I was four, he built a massive treehouse for my brother and I. It was extremely out of the characteristic of my father to be physically abusive. The family enjoyed a normal, happy life. Unlike his own parents, Raider went out of his way to be present in his children's lives. He remained this way for eight years. Instead of tearing other families apart, he focused on keeping his together. Raider's ego was such that while he desired fame and notoriety as a killer, he also relished in having a reputation as a great husband and father. During Carrie's childhood, he became the president of his church, Christ Lutheran. There, he found that sense of leadership, of power that he craved. Hello. And welcome to episode 15 of the Jury Room Podcast. To everybody out there who's listened so far, thank you. It's hard to believe we've made it to episode 15. So an announcement. Um, I'm going to be taking probably about an eight-week break. Um, 
I'm hoping to get some more episodes back out in around April. I just need to take a break, get some content, so that way I can, uh, you know, keep producing content. When I do come back, I'm going to go to a uh, two-episode-a-month schedule, and um, I'm going to start doing some Patreon stuff. Keep an eye out for that. That announcement will be coming. Uh, If you want to support the show, I'll provide the buy me a coffee link below. Any little bit helps. Make sure you go leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, wherever you can. Help the show get discovered and keep it going. So I'm not going anywhere. Make sure you say hi while I'm on break. I'll be around. I'm not, like I said, I'm not going anywhere. So, but I did want to say thank you to everybody who's been listening. And I appreciate each and every one of you. To all my loyal listeners, supporters, people tagging me, where, however you've supported the show, thank you. Now, there's only one story I want to share with you guys today. Uh, it's a sad one. If you or a loved one are thinking of committing suicide, please call somebody. Talk to someone. The suicide hotline prevention is 1-800-273-8255. So the story I want to share today is about a teenager who killed himself because the pandemic took everything away from him or what he felt like took everything away from him. He was a football player and he couldn't play football and he couldn't see his friends and he couldn't go to school. And so it destroyed him mentally and he took his own life. It's not worth it. Somebody out there will miss you somebody loves you don't commit suicide if you need help please please get help there's plenty of resources out there for everybody and mental health is extremely important and you got to take care of yourself again that number is 1-800-273-8255 now i'm going to play a trailer for you guys It's coming from Riddle Me That Podcast. It's on a topic that I've already covered. Jules and a bunch of her experts are going to take a deep dive look into the Jacob Londine case. So make sure you go subscribe and catch all of these episodes. Take it away. Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, and Jules and I want to tell you a little bit about a case that means a great deal to us, the death of nine-month-old baby Jacob Landine on April the 10th, 1987, in Socorro, New Mexico. The day prior to his death, on April 9th, baby Jacob was being watched by his mother Brenda's new boyfriend, John not his real name, in his mobile home on 1453 Fatima Drive. While John was babysitting Jacob, Jacob would incur what would be his second head injury in a period of weeks. The prior head injury was a subdural hematoma, or brain bleed, and it was serious enough that it needed to be lanced to take pressure off baby Jacob's brain while being monitored by doctors over the course of several days. The circumstances surrounding how Jacob was injured and subsequently died are murky at best with the suspect giving multiple versions of the events of the day, ranging from Jacob choking and accidentally hitting his head while trying to dislodge a cookie, to Jacob falling and John returning to see the injured infant. The suspect also reportedly confessed to two officers that he was indeed responsible, but there is no paper or audio record of this confession in the police file. The reasons given by the DA for not pursuing the case are confusing as well, with one of the reasons being that they were worried that John would file charges against the state. It was the opinion of the doctors that baby Jacob was struck in the head and this was no accident. In the years to follow, John goes on to sexually abuse young Eric, as well as physically abusing his mother Brenda and emotionally abusing and isolating them both, making the world very small. During the autopsy, layers of abuse seem to be present. A healing rib fracture from around the time of the first head injury is also discovered. It's impossible to say exactly when the injury took place, but what is clear is that someone was abusing young Jacob, and that person was most likely John. Eric Landine, Jacob's brother, has been fighting to get justice for him. 
However, he faces some obstacles, such as the statute of limitations of six years on second-degree murder that State Representative Bill Ream has petitioned to have overturned. Join Robin and I, as well as criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, an investigative expert, a legal expert, a forensic psychiatrist, as well as Jacob's brother, Eric, as we explore all angles of this case and try to bring awareness, understanding, and hopefully, ultimately, justice for Jacob. The series starts on March the 1st. Tune in on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, iTunes, Audible, wherever you can. Just leave a review and let me know how I'm doing. And now, back to BTK. When the dark urges did creep up on him, he had his box of trophies to turn to hidden from his family in secret crawl spaces were boxes and boxes of dark secrets, Polaroids he had taken of himself as a teen, pictures of his victims, items of clothing that belonged to them. He spent time with those trophies when he needed to, let that electricity spark through his veins as he remembered. When he was finished, He'd lock them away again and head downstairs to his family. Raider referred to his dark side as the Minotaur and Factor X. He managed to fully separate that version of himself from the one that went to church and tucked his daughter into bed at night. He told Larry, The only thing I can figure out is that I have compartmentalized somewhere in my body. I can live a normal life and quickly switch from one gear to the next. I can become emotionally involved, and I can be cold at it. I guess that's why I survived all those 30, 31 years. Conveniently, this also meant Raider was free of any remorse. He didn't need to feel bad about what he did, because he didn't do it. The Minotaur did. Factor X did, not Dennis. He had a different sense of morality as Dennis Raider than as BTK. Of course, this is just a convenient excuse, a way for a monster to make good with himself. The rest of the world knows better. The rest of the world understands that the man who held a plastic bag over a mother's head in front of her children is the same man who wishes his daughter sweet dreams. The trophies couldn't sustain his urges forever. He had a neighbor, Marine Hedge, who hadn't really caught his attention before. She was a grandmother with wide-framed glasses who enjoyed tending to her garden and playing bingo. She had recently lost a husband. Raider and Hedge were neighborly but their relationship didn't extend beyond a courteous wave or talk of the weather. Raider himself described it as a neighborly type thing. It wasn't anything personal, just a neighbor. Then, one day, as Raider passed her house, he suddenly wondered what his hands would look like around her neck. Well, actually, kind of like the others, she was chosen. He told interrogators years later, I went through the different phases, stalking phase, and since she lived down the street from me, I could watch the comings and goings quite easily. When he arrived at her house the night of the killing, he was surprised to see her car in the driveway. He hadn't planned for that. She wasn't supposed to be home. A little throne, He snuck into her house anyway, looked around for her. Then, he heard a door rattle. So I went back in one of the bedrooms and hid back there in one of the bedrooms. She came in with a male visitor. They were there for maybe an hour or so. He left. I waited until the wee hours of the morning and then proceeded to sneak into her bedroom and flipped the lights on real quick like, I think the bedroom lights, I didn't want to flip her lights on. 
She screamed. I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually. Once again, he accounts the chilling details as though he's ordering a sandwich. He's quick, casual, unfeeling. For Raider, sharing his story is part of the game. It's what will get his name on that map. Up there with Bundy and Manson and the rest. Every time he recounted a detail, he reminded the world of how little he cared. After Hedge died, he stashed her body in the trunk of his car. This was new for Raider. He had never transported a body before. He drove her to his church, Christ Lutheran, and carried her inside. She was naked, stripped of any dignity in her death. He posed her for pictures with his Polaroid, binding her in various ways. And now, for a quick break. Growing up as a latchkey kid in a small town in Maine, I always assumed I was safe. After all, unless it makes national news, murder isn't something people talk about around here. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Murder, She Told is a true crime podcast featuring crime stories, unsolved murders of missing persons, and baffling cold cases from my home state of Maine, New England, and small towns across America. These are the crime stories your hometown doesn't want to talk about. The mysteries buried deep in the newspaper archives of local American history. These are the homicides you've probably never heard of before. Through detailed storytelling and connections with family, friends, and investigators closest to the case, Murder, She Told will hit home for any true crime fan, whether you're from Maine or from away. Visit MurderSheTold.com to suggest your hometown crime story. And subscribe now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. Now, back to the show. When he finished, he dragged the woman's body back to his trunk, stuffed her inside like she was trash, then dumped her in a ditch. Hedge's body was discovered days later. No one thought BTK was responsible for her murder. It simply wasn't his M.O. He left his bodies behind, didn't dump them, or try to dispose of them. The police simply didn't make the connection. Because Hedge lived so close to Raider, Raider's eight-year-old daughter Carrie became frightened. She told her dad she was afraid that a killer would come, would take her away. Raider held her and promised her she had nothing to fear. Her dad would always protect her. Raider wasn't finished yet. He wanted to try something new, something bold, exciting, risky. Remember, for Raider, this was all a game. So in September of 1986, he dressed as an AT&T technician, complete with a briefcase and a telephone helmet, and knocked on a woman's door. The woman who answered was Vicky Wagerell, a young mother of two and a passionate pianist. When Raider arrived at her door, he could hear her playing piano inside. He knocked. Vicky was kind, trusting, and warm. When a man in a neon vest said her phone line wasn't working, she let him right inside. Raider recounted to investigators. I went over and found out where the telephone was and simulated that I was checking on the phone. I had a make-believe instrument. After she was looking away, I drew a pistol on her. I told her I was going to have to tie her up. She was very upset. I think I used some material. That's another thing. I think I had used some material that was in their bedroom. And after I tied her hands, she broke that. 
we started fighting and we fought quite a bit back and forth. I finally got the hand on her and got a nylon sock and started strangling her. I gained on her and put her down and I thought she was dead. But after she was down and not moving anymore, I rearranged her clothes a little bit and took some quick photos. Three of them, if I remember. His next and final victim was 62-year-old Dolores D. Davis. She was a fun-loving grandmother who loved to cook. She was incredibly close to her son, Jeff, who she would talk on the phone with for hours every weekend. She loved to watch movies. And her son recalled a happy last Christmas in 1990 when she watched All Dogs Go to Heaven with her grandchildren. She cried through the whole film. Less than one month later, she was resting in her bedroom when a concrete brick came crashing through the front door window. By the time she emerged from her bedroom, dazed and scared, Raider was looming in the doorway. He put her in handcuffs, then strangled her. This time, Raider was in a hurry. He told interrogators, I really had a commitment I needed to go to. He stuffed her in the trunk of her own car and headed out. He threw her body underneath a bridge after placing a mask of a woman's face over her head. She was discovered a few days later. This is your worst nightmare. Jeff Davis, Dolores' son, told Snapped. I remember that entire night. I didn't sleep. I just laid there. I just wept the entire night. Once again, the police did not connect Raider to this killing. He was meticulous in leaving a trail with no connections, so he couldn't be identified. Shortly after Davis's murder, Raider got a job as an appliance officer for the city. Suddenly, he had more power, more authority than he had ever had at work. He thrived on it. Once again, he no longer felt the need to kill. He was satisfied by his role at work. Raider moved his trophy collection to his new office, locking it away in a file cabinet where he was sure no one would ever see it. In this way, he was separating BTK even more from Dennis Raider, loving husband and father. If his trophies weren't at home, neither was Factor X. Raider liked to play the tough guy at work, mostly to his female employees. There was one woman in particular, Mary Capps, who he loved to torment. One day, Capps was searching for a file. When Raider walked into the room, he shut the door behind him and started yelling at Capps. He approached her threateningly and she screamed for help. Dennis quickly let himself out. I complained about Dennis every day, Capps later recalled. Never got anybody to listen to me because Dennis Raider was a church leader, a boy scout leader, a loving husband and father. They all thought he was a good guy. January 15, 2004 marked the 13th anniversary of the Otero family slaughter. At this point, it had been so long since the world heard from BTK that the cops thought he had died or moved away. The Wichita Eagle published an article honoring the Otero family in an effort to generate new leads. Suddenly, BTK's name was in the news again. Dennis Rader was thrilled. By this point, Dennis's son Brian had left for the Navy and his daughter Carrie was married. He had an empty nest, a newfound freedom, an escape. He was ready to play again. A few months after the story ran, Rader sent a letter to the paper. He claimed that he was responsible for the killing of Vicky and sent the Polaroids he had taken of her. 
as well as a photocopy of her driver's license, which had been missing from the crime scene. With the re-emergence came a media storm. His name was on every news station, not just locally, but internationally. Women in Wichita were terrified. Mace was selling out of every store. No one dared to walk alone at night. On December 14th, 2004, Cake TV got a call from someone who found a strange box in the park. He thought it might be planted by BTK. The box contained a Barbie doll who was tied by a noose to a pipe. It seemed to be a symbol for Josephine's death. The only other item in the box was Nancy Fox's driver's license. What Dennis Rader did not seem to realize was that this was not the 70s anymore. DNA technology had reached new heights, and Raider had left behind a lot of it. The police were determined to catch the killer. With a new vigor, they went door to door swabbing any men in Wichita who matched his description. In all, they swabbed 1,300 men. None of them matched BTK. It was an enormous blow. For Raider, the newfound interest in his case meant everything. It was like it ignited a second life for the killer. Like he had been invited into an exclusive club. Asked to play a game that only select few could be a part of. On January 17th, 2005, he sent a letter to Cake TV telling them there was a cereal box in a truck in the parking lot. The cereal box was supposed to be a play on serial killer. He told them to take a look inside. There, they found a note. Can I communicate with the floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. Did Raider really believe that the police were in on the fun? That they were a team? People he could trust? He asked the police to respond to his note by placing an ad in the classifieds. That's exactly what they did. They assured him that no, his disc couldn't be traced. Of course, they were lying. Days later, a floppy disk arrived in the mail. The police inserted it into their computer. It was a single document with one short message. This is a test. What was the killer planning? The police didn't wait to find out. They were able to trace the disk back to a computer at the Christ Lutheran Church. The trace could even track the login of the computer's user. Thirty long years after a family was left dead by a vicious monster, police read the name of their killer for the very first time. Dennis Raider. After his arrest, Raider pled guilty to all charges and was more than happy to describe his crimes to whoever wanted to listen. In an exclusive interview with Cake TV's Larry Hattenberg, the news anchor asked Raider if he had planned to kill again. He told him yes, that he had an 11th victim in mind, someone he had already started stalking. Her name, he said, was Mary. He described her house and its location. It was a match for his employee Mary Capps, who he had been harassing for years. The one person he never seemed to fool. Now, the notorious BTK was rotting away in a prison cell. He received 10 life sentences for the terrible things he did, for the lives that he stole away. Jeff Davis, the son of Raider's last victim, said it best. In the end, he loses. He loses, and we win. Thanks for listening.
And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thank you for listening. I know this was a... This guy was a monster and a disgusting human being. But this is the part of the show where I want to take a moment of silence for all the victims. Now, don't forget, I'm going to be going on a break. Make sure you catch up on all the episodes. Leave a review, subscribe. I'll be back. Look for upcoming announcements. I have a lot of stuff in the works, a lot of collaborations that I'm working on behind the scenes. And I'm super excited about them. And again, thanks for listening.